Welcome to the Driven by Prevention podcast by the Merck Animal Health Swine Team. Merck Animal Health is proud to be your invested partner in the industry and is focused on solving your swine disease and reproductive challenges for better business and improved animal welfare, productivity, opportunity, partnership, wellness, all driven by prevention. Welcome to the Driven by Prevention podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Marr. On this episode, I'm super excited to discuss porcine sapo virus with Iowa State University's Dr. Phil Gauger and ARC Care Veterinary Clinic's Dr. Tom Petznik. Let's kick things off with Dr. Gauger. Dr. Gauger, can you please give us an overview of porcine sapo virus and your history of working with the virus from a diagnostic and genomic perspective. Thanks, Dr. Maurer, uh, for the opportunity today. And uh, I'm happy to provide as much information, at least as what we know regarding sapovirus and it's involved with enteric disease and um, some young swine. But if we will, as far as an overview of porcine sapovirus and really looking at the history of the virus, in general, it's actually quite long, although its inclusion as a true differential in porcine diarrhea or enteric disease has actually been more or less quite recent with some of the data that's been produced that supports um, it being an etiologic agent with porcine diarrhea. But sapovirus is a Khaleesi virus. Um, it's a, an RNA virus. It's about seven to 8,000 nucleotides in length. And it's actually been detected in mixed enteric infections all the way back to 1980. Although the problem at the time with available diagnostic tests and um, evaluating the diagnostic data, the, the clinical relevance of the virus or its significance was unknown or poorly characterized. And since that time, sapovirus has been detected by molecular diagnostic tests like PCR in pigs with clinical signs of diarrhea, but it was also detected at a similar rate in asymptomatic swine. So that still created some confusion in these situations in which where we can detect a virus in both clinical and non-clinical animals, whether or not it has <clears throat> much for clinical relevance or not. So overall, throughout uh, the longer history, sapovirus or porcine sapovirus was still detected in a combination with other known causes of diarrhea in swine, which complicated the ability to associate causation with porcine sapovirus and enteric disease in pigs. So really, um, a lot of that information has come more recently. So what we have found with some of the work that we've done um, with actually Dr. Tom Pesnick um, on the podcast as well is uh, we were able to detect sapovirus as the sole etiologic agent naturally infected pigs with diarrhea, suggesting it is associated with porcine diarrhea. So in these situations, having the availability of whole genome sequencing or next generation sequencing has been important to be able to investigate these cases. But when we're able to get a whole genome sequence from the diagnostic perspective, uh, we can develop PCRs that are very specific to the agent of interest. And in this case, we were able to use whole genome sequences to develop specific PCRs for porcine sapovirus. And, and the goal there is we wanna develop it to what the currently circulating strains are of the virus in the uh, region or in the country where the concern is, is located. Uh, so that was really important as far as um, the diagnostics and the diagnostic development to where we are at today. But not only that, from the, then the diagnostic perspective, 
if we're going to include a particular agent, uh, especially one that's emerging, we would want to be able to view microscopic lesions that are consistent with whatever the clinical signs are. And in this case, it, of course, would be viral enteritis. And if we can show that there are lesions consistent with the virus and we can uh, correlate that with a positive ancillary test like PCR, we feel that's diagnostic data we can put together in order to support whether or not a particular a virus has a role in clinical disease. So it's really only been recently with this information that we've started to bring sample virus kind of to the forefront as a differential, again, in porcine diarrhea cases. And it's then only recently we've really started to diagnose these cases because of our knowledge that we have available uh, for the virus. <clears throat> so when you think about porcine sample virus, the prevalence or being able to detect it in pigs is quite high. But if you have neonatal or suckling pigs or early nursery pig diarrhea that has been undiagnosed based on looking at what our typical pathogens would be, you should probably consider porcine sample virus as a differential and do some additional diagnostic testing with tissues from affected and non-infected pigs to confirm. So that's kind of where we're at diagnostically. From the genome perspective, I mentioned porcine sample virus is a Khaleesi virus. Um, it's an RNA virus. <clears throat> And what we've seen over the years with what has been detected in pigs and sequences uh, and sequenced is that they've been classified into several different genogroups based on the genetic sequences, primarily of the VP1 gene, which is the nucleocapsid protein. However, it's been well established that among 19 different genogroups, at least eight of these have been detected in swine, although it's the genotype three that is the only uh, group that's known to cause clinical signs associated with the enteric disease in pigs. So our diagnostic tests are gonna be specific to this genotype three, if we're gonna be able to detect the correct uh, genotype of saprovirus that's been known to be associated with clinical diarrhea. So overall, the genotype three saproviruses are genetically diverse. So that means the nucleotide variability we're seeing so far with the VP1 gene is quite broad. And evaluating a limited number of whole genome sequences at the ISU-BDL, the nucleotide identity has ranged from 83% up to 99%. And with what we have so far, that would average around 90%. So that really does support some broad genetic diversity that we're seeing in the virus so far. Um, so that's kind of a brief overview of a little bit of what's known from the history, what we have diagnostically available and how we got to this point of including it as a differential and what we're seeing from the uh, sequence perspective in Eorio from down to the gene level perspective. But, you can find more information regarding porcine sample virus in the Swine Health Information Center's website where they've provided fact sheets for several pathogens and that would include porcine sample virus as well. Wow, well, thanks Dr. Gauger for that uh, great overview to start things off. Now over to Dr. Petsnik. What are your clinical impressions of this virus having worked with it at the SLAT level? Yes, thanks again um, for letting me uh, take some time out and, and get to talk about something that's um, pretty close to uh, some work that I've done and some things that we've seen out there. And I, I fully expect this is going to become a, a more important uh, part of what we do in the swine industry and look at from a health perspective at a lot of farms. And it is because of that clinical, pers uh, clinical perspective that I have on it. Uh, in in my hands, I have found sapovirus either as a uh, as a sole uh, cause of diarrhea in piglets, as well as uh, a mixed infection. 
and it's really, really hard to differentiate. Most people could probably describe it as looking like a coccidia type of scour. In fact, it was something that I confused it with when I first started to see it. It develops right around seven days of age and can go all the way up towards weaning. It seems to self-limit thereafter. But what we would find is anywhere from a watery stool, not as common, to a gravy-like stool, and then very commonly also just like a toothpaste type of stool. And what we see in those pigs is they get a little dirtier looking because of the looseness. And we see that it affects really a lot of litters, regardless of whether they're gilts or whether they're sows. And it just sets them back and gives that look of, of not doing as well. Our mortality is not really hardly associated with it at all, as it doesn't cause acute death loss that, that I've been able to note. It's more that drag on production and on the on the growth of that piglet. Now, the only mortality that you might gain from that is if it keeps a piglet from reaching a certain weight or a certain quality that they need at weaning time. But I would say more so it's the morbidity that gets you. And in a lot of our work that we did in trying to establish its importance and whether that was there or not, we basically had about a one to two pound wean weight drag on those farms. And again, kind of on the clinical standpoint, it, it's very difficult. I've had days where I visited several sow farms specifically looking at this. And at one farm, it looked identical to the other two. Yet when we did the diagnostics on those particular pigs, one pig was sapovirus, the other farm was rotavirus, the other one was both. And so it does seem to have a, a degree of, of change on what the severity is. Certainly when we get the co-infections, it's worse. But, but the farm that we established the one to two pound drag on wean weight was a documented purely porcine sapovirus infected farm. So, or at least the pigs at that time. So it, it's a big player is what I see clinically out there. And the good news is we're starting to see solutions for that. So, so Dr. Petsnick, if you don't mind for our listeners, age of pig and top differentials when thinking of these things, uh, walking through barns today. Yes. What I would see, and I alluded that a little bit already is I, I can't describe that I've seen it much before six or seven days of age. And it could be pigs that are perfectly clinically normal. And then they start to develop that looseness and that staining that you see within the crate and on their skin. Don't necessarily see as much of the, of the reddened anus rectum area, but uh, definitely see that staining. And then I've seen it actually take as long as 12 to 14 days to develop. But that would typically most most new cases would arrive somewhere between seven and fourteen days, and then when we're diagnosing that and working it up, as I mentioned, the the two top rule outs would be coccidiosis, as well as rotavirus infection, either A, B, C, or all the above, and still thrown in there, we always look and make sure that we don't have a late oncoming E. coli, K. 
or a clostridial component to that. But I guess in most of the herds I'm in, we typically are gonna see that prior to the, this onset. There may be a little overlap in the early stages, but certainly those bacterial infections, even if they're not as rampant, they can, they can continue to be a cofactor in the, in the recovery. Dr. Petznik, could you uh, walk us through the process of that initial diagnosis of SAFO virus and, and how um, Dr. Gauger and the team at Iowa State Veterinary Diagnostic Lab was able to assist in that? Yeah, absolutely. Because that was really, I, I couldn't do it on my own. It was, it was something that was a real perplex, perplexing problem within this herd. And so this was a, a herd that I'd worked with for some time, and we'd been through some problems uh, several years ago be before that with porcine delta coronavirus. But we moved that virus out really, really quickly at Bant Farm within a period of about seven to eight weeks. However, coming out of that, we had a few scares where we thought maybe it was relapsing because we started seeing a diarrhea, as I described it, around seven to 14 days that wasn't responsive to treatment. And so as we looked into that, we first of all ruled out Delta coronavirus. I guess that's another one that we should include in that list or PD. But as we tried to rule it out, that was negative. And then we did diagnostics. And early in the stages of some of the chronic diarrhea issues that farm ended up with, we had certainly some Rota A and some Rota C in particular in those pigs. And we would find that. And so we took on a vaccination program, feedback program in which to deal with it. And it would seem like we would get pretty good recovery from that. But then every once in a while, we'd see what we called a quote unquote flare up in those pigs. And in that flare up, we always then first went directly to, okay, let's, let's A, do diagnostics again, or we might even, without the diagnostics, say, okay, are we giving the shots on time? Are we doing the feedback correctly, et cetera? Well, we got extremely frustrated uh, for a period of time because it seems like we were spending way too much money on diagnostics, but not getting the answers that we were wanting. So we kept getting back some results towards the, the initial diagnosis that there was no rotavirus found, A, B, or C on PCR, Yet the comments in the in the histopath section would be, it looks like a recent rota infection with atrophic enteritis being noted. And so that really became a head scratcher as far as what else is causing this. And the producer had become really, really frustrated. And, and in that frustration, uh, that gave me the energy to say, okay, this, this seems like the perfect time in which to go in myself and, and take another round of diagnostics. And, and if we repeated that same problem and that we had rotavirus-like lesions, yet we didn't have any rotavirus detected on PCR, I knew I collected them. I knew they were fresh diagnostics from the day before when those pigs started having diarrhea. So I knew I wasn't catching something late. And, and so that obviously goes back to what we were taught in school with getting acutely affected pigs. And then when I got the same results, I asked the diagnostic lab at ISU to go ahead and run a next generation sequence sequencing on that. So that tool being really, really valuable. 
because we were just at a loss as far as what else could be causing this. And then a few weeks passed because those aren't run every day, obviously. And I got a call from the diagnostic lab that we had some interesting results. And I believe that call was from Dr. Lee in the molecular lab. And as we started talking about it, he said, this is really fascinating because the vast majority, a strong majority of your of your hits on the on the next generation sequencing is porcine sapovirus. In my comments to him, I said, well, I didn't know sapolovirus caused diarrhea. And he says, no, I'm not talking about sapolovirus. I'm talking about sapovirus. So that's, right. really, that's really where I got my education on, on it. And so that process of, of working through that with Dr. Lee, working with, with Dr. Gauger, I mean, those guys uh, stood by my side and we worked through it all and then developed plans to try to validate that as a, as a true sapovirus-only infection. I mean, sounds like a, a real industry team effort there. And I think that's something that's really exciting about uh, some of what these newer diagnostic uh, technologies are bringing, but they still, uh, you know, rely on what the practitioner is seeing and, and working the case up just as Dr. Petsnik did. So um, next, we'll dive into case workups and exploring more of those diagnostic tools and control measures. All that coming up after the break. Today's Driven by Prevention podcast is brought to you by Sequivity. New and evolving diseases and pathogens represent a continuing threat to the food animal population. Sequivity, a revolutionary RNA particle technology from Merck Animal Health, is at the forefront of vaccine technology designed to combat this ongoing risk. Learn more at sequivity.com. Okay, we're back with Dr. Gauger and Dr. Petsnik discussing porcine sapovirus. Dr. Gauger, what other pathogens should be tested for in the workup of suckling pig diarrhea? I think Dr. Petsnik mentioned a few, but maybe uh, are there some multiplex panels that can help and just some cost considerations in doing this workup. Sure. No, those are good questions related to how we would approach um, diagnosing or detecting a virus like sapovirus um, in our diagnostic cases. But Dr. Pesnik did give, through his discussions, a good overview of how he was working up cases and how there were additional diagnostic questions that really came from kind of a lack of results there based on what a lot of the common differentials would be for um, a suckling pig diarrhea. And so when I think about um, uh, differentials for diarrhea in pigs, I'm really thinking about the age and kind of honing in on what pathogens would be most appropriate to be ruling out based on the age of the pig that's been clinically affected. And so as Dr. Pesnik mentioned in the case of saprovirus, then we're talking about pigs that are in that suckling age. Um, he mentioned it starting at seven days of age and probably becoming uh, more or less clinically irrelevant when you get into the nursery. So um, when we think about then the suckling pig age, anywhere from seven to 21 days, um, we're thinking about both viruses and bacteria that can be involved and probably one of the main ones, as uh, Dr. Pesnik mentioned earlier, would be rotavirus and it would be any of those three genogroups 
the A, B, and C. So that would always be on the list for uh, pig diarrhea at that age. But really, you can also include the coronaviruses on that list as well. Now, we tend to think some of the coronaviruses, like PED, should be fairly severe, and, and we uh, might try to hone in on what we would include in our testing regimen based on severity of clinical signs. But in the end, you can't always just rule these out based on clinical presentations because of the variability that can be there. So in addition to rotavirus, the coronaviruses like PED, as well as Delta coronavirus and TGE, although we don't see it very often, could cause a similar clinical uh, scenario as what's been described for sapovirus. And then when we go beyond the uh, viruses, um, we need to keep in mind that at that age, E. coli, particularly hemolytic E. coli, but we can't have other uh, types of E. coli involved with suckling pig diarrheas. That would be on the list. And in some limited cases, uh, clostridium perfringens, perhaps, uh, type A might be considered there as the pigs are getting uh, too old by seven days of age, really for uh, the clostridium perfringens type C. But then another one that maybe could be on the list, but maybe a little bit lower would be clostridium difficile. And I usually include that up till 10 days of age. So if you have a pig that's experiencing clinical diarrhea less than 10 days of age, that could be considered as well. And then lastly, as Dr. Pesnik mentioned, um, this is the right age for coccidiosis. And with modern production, sometimes we don't always uh, consider that, in particular because I'd say rotavirus is so common in these particular cases, but a coccidiosis would be on the list as well. And so it's suggested to include these diagnostic tests or diagnostic tests that can rule out these agents when diagnosing porcine enteric disease. And, and in addition to that, you really should include some of your fixed tissues and, and uh, be able to evaluate enteric lesions as well. So you can see what's consistent with a viral enteritis if that's the lesion that the pathologist gets to see and what's submitted. So regarding tests, um, at least with our molecular diagnostics, which are so common for the viruses, uh, things have advanced at least to where we can either multiplex or panel these tests. In particular, the three genogroups, A, B, and C of rotavirus are uh, together in one assay or test, so that helps keep the cost of detecting those three different agents uh, lower than if we had to test them individually. And then the coronaviruses, because that test is fairly common, even though some of the agents are not, uh, that test has also been multiplexed into including all three agents, PED, the Delta Corona, TGE, into one reaction, and that's helped reduce the cost there as well. Regarding the other agents, you know, when you're considering bacteria, you have to go with culture, so you're looking at fresh tissue for that. Um, and we look for particular lesions when diagnosing some of these particular agents as well. So um, we can see uh, lesions associated with coccidia and can also see uh, the agent itself uh, under the scope when we're looking at tissues. But uh, we could have uh, fecal floats done for that particular agent as well. But for the most part, um, a lot of molecular diagnostics that have been incorporated for this purpose and certainly multiplex to help keep the cost at a minimum. And moving on to sapovirus, what diagnostic tools exist for that pathogen today? Okay, so um, regarding uh, sapovirus in particular, uh, I would say that we would look mostly at our PCR tests. So the most sensitive and specific tests available for detecting porcine sapovirus includes real-time PCR. And it's also very rapid, so we can get the test completed fast, and it's also quite accurate. 
So these PCRs have been developed to be specific for the genogroup 3 sapovirus because there are so many other genogroups that could be present in swine or within the uh, enteric system. We would want to make sure the, the assay has been specific to that particular genogroup that's been associated with disease. So the detection there is specific to the virus then associated with the clinical disease. Um, the real-time PCR results, as many know, include a cycle threshold value where the lower the value uh, indicates the more virus is present in the sample. So these results, including the PCR, include the PCR CT value. And when you consider that with the clinical signs in the group, that helps you to correlate detection with the, the clinical outcome. And then in addition, you know, we have histopathology, which is considered a test, but it's not really anything new, but that would or should be included in a diagnostic workup if needing a diagnosis and the cause of clinical disease. And then of course, bacterial culture is available to help rule out co-infections or bacterial causes of diarrhea. Whole genome sequencing is available. Um, Dr. Pesnik mentioned that and that it was very important in the process of coming to this conclusion with all of our diagnostic data that sapovirus should be a differential for suckling pig diarrhea. But of course, we would uh, be reserving that for particular situations when that would be necessary. So if we wanna start looking more at the epidemiology of the virus, we could be looking at whole genome sequencing for that. And in the case of discovery of sapovirus, it was really looking at a novel pathogen screen or just screening the, the sample to see what could be there and what was the prevalence of the different uh, detections there that could be correlated with what's going on in the pig. So walking through that, let's say a practitioner sends in fecal swabs, maybe not the preferred sample type in a full case workup, but they request a PCR for sapovirus. How, how would you uh, help a practitioner then interpret those results if they were to come up positive? So in a situation where we're looking at um, an anamortem sample type to, uh, for a method of detection for a particular agent like sapovirus, I think ideally it would be great if we could take samples from acutely affected pigs, those that are gonna be representative of the problem that's occurring in the population of interest at the time so that we're sure the result that we would get would be representative again of what's being clinically represented in the population. But if we collect those from acutely affected pigs, uh, collecting a few uh, rectal swabs or fecal swabs from non-affected pigs could be beneficial as well so that we have a way to compare the two different results together. And so when, when we're doing PCR, which is what we would do on these samples, um, we can pool them in order to cut some costs, but keep in mind that you lose some of that individual detection and analysis that can occur when you do a single uh, test on the individual samples. But um, once the results are done, what I really would look at is how positive those samples are and how that correlates back to both the history the clinical signs within the population and whether or not we're seeing these lower CT values being consistent with the pigs that were clinically affected or acutely affected and the expectation that we might still detect sapovirus in non-clinical pigs, but we just would have most likely higher CT values, which would make sense if they're not clinical and it just simply isn't as much virus present in the sample at the time because it's probably not replicating and contributing to the clinical disease. So I still approach um, looking at results from real-time PCR in that respect. But then again, 
you take those results um, back to the farm and you uh, see what is consistent or what aligns with what's going on clinically in the group and how that would make sense for at least getting a presumptive diagnosis when we're not looking at histopathology or having fixed tissues for that purpose. Great, and thanks for that. I think another another question on uh, future tests would be what's in the works or uh, mm -hmm. what would you like to see? And we'll, sure. we'll, we'll start with you, Dr. Gauger, but then um, the same question would apply to Dr. Petsnick as well from a field perspective. Okay. Well, just briefly, as far as at the diagnostic lab, what we would like to have more available as time goes on and, and assuming we will see more cases diagnosed with sapovirus is really being able to have a good gene sequencing method in place so that we could do sequencing of sapovirus and follow the epidemiology a little bit better. So when you start looking at how you're going to incorporate methods of control, understanding uh, the virus down to that genomic level can be very important. And so thus far, the VP1 gene that I mentioned earlier appears to be one of the most important for understanding the epidemiology. But because of the genetic diversity of these sapoviruses, even the genotype 3 in pigs, it can be a little bit of a challenge getting some of these uh, sequencing methods uh, perfected. Um, the sequencing data has to be very clean so that we know for sure what we're producing is the correct result. Because again, on the epidemiology level, uh, the, the sequence has to be accurate. So that's why I say it still is kind of a work in progress. But if we could get gene sequencing based on the Sanger platform for VP1, that would be, uh, I think, a benefit in the future. And then uh, there's a process called in situ hybridization, where basically you're taking um, the fixed tissue now and you're taking that slide that has that section of tissue on it and you're performing a method of detection, uh, actually using a probe-based detection where it's a probe that's uh, fluorescently labeled and knowing the sequence of sapovirus, you've developed the test so that it can hybridize to a section of the sequence of sapo if it's present within the tissue. And then through that process, we can look at it under a fluorescent scope and see if we find cells that have been infected with sapovirus. And the reason, especially a lot of diagnostic labs like in situ hybridization, or um, for many of you that have uh, heard of uh, immunohistochemistry, those both work on the same premise. But the reason that they're nice to have is because you can detect the agent within the lesion itself. And that makes for a very conclusive diagnosis. So those are a couple of tests that are in progress, um, trying to get those validated so that they work very well. And lastly, if we could isolate the virus, although maybe not so critical from a diagnostic perspective, that would provide you know, additional possibilities, perhaps from a control aspect, maybe based on uh, vaccine development, but really we would wanna have those isolates to put them back into pigs so we could understand the pathogenesis of the disease uh, much better. Great, and Dr. Petsnick, what about for you in the field, what do you feel like you're you're missing from a diagnostic perspective? I would uh, first of all echo what uh, Dr. Gallagher just finished up there with on the virus isolation. We're really in our infancy stages of understanding how to control this virus and how to mitigate it, and just having that as another option uh, that we could look at to use uh, solutions of vaccine and so forth 
related to using a killed product would be a, just another tool in the tool belt, or perhaps at least we could check that box is whether it would or wouldn't work. But then the other one would be just as a practitioner out in the field is just a, a greater understanding uh, or greater options to test for it, uh, even by PCR. You know, for example, in uh, in as a multiplex test, possibly with like a rotavirus PCR, you'd have A, B, C, and possibly sapovirus thrown in there. And I guess you could also in the early infancy stages when you're concerned about the original break that you could include the coronaviruses as well. And I know that gets complex and such, uh, but but those multiplex that we have similar to the rota A, B, C. Um, some labs have a PERS and a flu that go together. And then we very commonly use PCV2 and PCV3 together. That would be the other one that would be useful. So sticking with Dr. Petznik here, you, you mentioned um, some of the control measures and what have you implemented today um, on some of your farms and uh, how they helped in mitigating the impact of Sapovirus? So what we uh, initially did on the on the index cases we had or the first farm that we saw it on is we initially said, well, we really don't know what to do. Once we had gotten that good data and the help of the diagnostic lab to say this really is a virus that impacts pigs in and of itself on its own, and and that then it's like, okay, how are we going to control it? And we're learning every day. But one of the things that we ruled out very quickly is we really did not have a, a good response to traditional uh, diarrhea feedback to the sows and similar to what we would get out of any of the coronaviruses or the rotaviruses. And still to this day, I don't know quite why that is, but it just didn't seem to have any impact really at all. So the next really option we had because of our limited ability or almost impossibility at doing virus isolation and, and trying to propagate that virus at any high level, we were real fortunate that the RNA technologies that are out there, the RNA particle technologies were available and that it did appear, um, we, we, act, we did that through with, uh, with, with the group at Merck, is we were able to establish that it looked like that technology would be beneficial in this case, and indeed that's what it was. And so we initially went through some trials with that RNA technology that Merck helped support. And we did uh, two uh, in which that's where we established, first of all, the one to two pound wean weight. And then we were able to basically titrate the dose then in the subsequent uh, study to where it became an economically feasible product uh, to use. And so the vast majority of my farms and when I say that, it'd be over 50% of my farms today that we found sapovirus on. And those those farms were now vaccinating pre-ferro, similar to what we would do with rotavirus and that RNA uh, platform. So those are really the only two that we have at this point uh, that are from an intervention standpoint, other than the, the basics of enteric disease in the farrowing house. And that's optimal environments, optimal sanitation, and then just really good job of acclimation and immune development in our growing gilts. What 
What have your clinical impressions been thus far in regards to those measures of control? It was very clear cut that whenever we had sows that were vaccinated with the with sapovirus, that we saw an outcome that was good. For the first period of time, when we were doing the trials, we would do one week on, one week off, and we could see it clearly within the farrowing house that sows that were vaccinated had, were having better outcomes, or I should say the piglets from those sows that were vaccinated were having better outcomes and then the pigs that were not. But then when towards the end of the trial, what we did is we did four weeks continuously. And then all of a sudden we had a farrowing house that was entirely full of vaccinated dams. And that was really, really clear, even more so. So once we did that, virus really fell off the map as far as a impact on the growth of those pigs. And we did gain those one to two pound wean weights back and it was evident. And then that really helped those pigs downstream as we know. Dr. Gogger, uh, Dr. Petznik mentioned, you know, some feedback methods and, and um, vaccine efforts in circling back to the diagnostics. Is, is there any tools available or in development that practitioners would be able to, to measure that? Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking maybe serologically and outside of just a molecular method. Well, that's a good question. And since we're kind of still in the infancy of this thing, as Dr. Pesnik mentioned, uh, we're still learning more about the virus and what tests are really needed. And when it comes to serology, um, that would be one that um, probably could be useful, but hasn't been uh, towards the top of the list, if you will, for development, primarily because of the complexity trying to get antigen for a serology test that is can be useful then for validating, which becomes very, uh, validating the test, which becomes very complicated. So it would be helpful if we could isolate the virus for that purpose. Usually um, when we have isolates, we can create some crude serology tests and perfect them from there. But as we mentioned earlier, we're still struggling to get an isolate. So it's looked like uh, sapovirus is gonna be one of the more difficult ones from a virus isolation standpoint. So that would still be um, a, a long-term goal, but not one that we really have available sure. yet. So uh, measuring those immune responses, unfortunately at this time probably has to go by clinical impressions versus an antibody response and just uh, clinically how the animals look in response to some type of uh, immune stimulation, whether it be natural infection or vaccine. Sure, sure. Dr. Gogger, uh, switching gears a little bit, the if you wouldn't mind maybe giving a, a snapshot review of the findings in the recent publication in the Transboundary and Emerging Disease Journal, um, the article by Shin et al. Mm -hmm. Sure. So uh, myself and Dr. Lee, who is in charge of the whole genome sequencing, um, Dr. Burrow and Dr. Zhang, who are also diagnosticians here at Iowa State, work with Dr. Pesnik on uh, creating this paper with some diagnostic data that we felt would be beneficial to show um, the importance of sapovirus and uh, how, we came, how it came to be that this was implicated truly in um, uh, suckling pig diarrhea. So the goal of the paper you know, was to establish that porcine sapovirus can be a sole cause of diarrhea in young swine or the suckling age swine 
considering the previous reports that have been out there in the literature had really not established true causation. And in particular, you know, when co-infections are detected in those enteric cases. So in the paper, um, the outbreak farm was selected by uh, Dr. Pesnik and it had been confirmed by a PCR that was initially developed. But uh, one of the aspects of the paper that we chose to do is as a level of diagnostic support that sapovirus is causing clinical diseases. Dr. Pesnik uh, chose around 50 clinical pigs with diarrhea and took fecal swabs from those and also then collected fecal swabs from 50 non-clinical pigs, again, for the PCR. So uh, that was one aspect of samples we chose. And then in addition, we evaluated the histopathology of the affected and non-affected pigs. We went back to conduct full genome sequencing so we could evaluate the presence of cofactors again after that initial case that Dr. Pesnik described, but also to make sure that what we're detecting would be consistent with the previous sequences that had been generated. And then we also began uh, validating the in-situ hybridization in this paper as it was described. And then finally, we collected over 330 samples from cases submitted to the ISU-VDL representing pigs with clinical diarrhea and then the same sample submitted for other reasons, but unrelated to enteric issues. So overall, the results really demonstrated that with the PCR-CT values that we've talked about before, they were significantly lower, indicating more virus present from the clinically affected pigs compared to the, the, the cohorts of the non-affected group. So that was one level of diagnostic data that was really supportive that this was involved within the uh, clinical scenario that was occurring on the farm. Microscopic lesions in the intestine representing the pigs with diarrhea demonstrated a mild to moderate blunting or atrophy of the, of the villi, and then also attenuation of the mucosal epithelium. And we don't ever really know what stage of the disease process we're going to be in when we get these tissues, but um, definitely these had been affected. And I think it's somewhat similar to what we'll see with a lot of rotavirus cases as well. But, you know, you get into the viral enteritis, and the lesions can appear similar across all those different viruses we mentioned earlier. So, um, in addition, the in-situ hybridization, that was also positive after much effort, but that was able then to demonstrate sapovirus was present in the cells of the intestinal villi where replication of the virus would occur. And then finally, the NGS demonstrated the presence of sapovirus without other common causes of porcine diarrhea. So we had the sole detection of this agent again and that provided further diagnostic evidence supporting an etiologic role of sapovirus in the diarrhea. Finally, regarding those 330 samples from the field cases, the detection rate or the number of PCR positives between cases from clinical diarrhea versus not were actually similar. I think it was around 43% were positive. However, when we go back to looking at the real-time PCR results, um, and noting that CT value, again, those from the clinical cases was significantly lower compared to those uh, detections that occurred from cases not related to enteric disease. So we feel these results combine several different levels of diagnostic evidence that sapovirus can cause clinical diarrhea in, in pigs at that suckling age primarily. Um, sapovirus has been difficult, again, to isolate in cell culture. So one thing that is still lacking is the ability to do an experimental infection to support causation. So that, of course, wasn't in the paper, but that would be the one thing left that would really add a additional support uh, if we could repeat this experimentally in a group of pigs. So as, as we finish up this episode, starting with Dr. Petsnik, what words of wisdom would you offer to 
practitioners dealing with scours and young pigs based on your knowledge and experience now with Safavirus? Yeah, I think there's some really good take-homes. And some of it has been taught to us from a very early part of our veterinary careers. And it just continues to echo back is the first one would be there's so many diseases that we try to diagnose by sight alone. And whether that's a respiratory workup or a diarrhea workup, we just can't tell. We can get a really good clinical impression and we have to have that in order to do uh, a temporary diagnosis, uh, tentative diagnosis, and be able to act until we know more. But to be able to differentiate these things is really, really difficult just with the eye. Secondly would be when you're not getting the answers that you are looking for or you know good answers and in this case we just repeatedly kept seeing you know weak or negative rotavirus results yet we had rotavirus like in, in, uh, disease showing in the in the histopath then we really need to be able to step back and think that through and it and say man maybe we need to go the next step and that's where we start partnering with our diagnostic lab more and relying on our clinicians to say, what's my next step here? And, and that's really the third one that I think is just so important is that we really are all in this together and the ability to take the team of the practitioner in the field, take the team at the diagnostic lab, and then take the team that helps us make that solution to be able to fix the problem, in this case, it was Merck and, and, and any of our other vendors, is that that is just really, really valuable to come up with a solution for a pig and for the owners of those pigs. And, and I, th I just think that we need to continue to build that relationship and utilize it to leverage our ability to make solutions happen. What about you, Dr. Gauger? Well, I, I think that it, it sounds a little redundant, but it can't be stressed enough. Um, what is needed from a persistent standpoint in our diagnostic efforts when, again, things either aren't aligning, aligning in a diagnostic case or making sense, as was the situation with this uh, and SAPL virus and an eventual diagnosis. So being persistent in the diagnostic effort, which typically means multiple submissions, is really necessary. And Dr. Pesnik reiterated that in his comment he said as well but i think his example is really um, kind of a prototype for what would be a process for trying to get to a good diagnosis when things again aren't making sense when they're not aligning when we've ruled out the typical pathogens that we would expect um, in those types of situations and just coming up kind of with nothing so that persistence is important be thinking about um, how you would perhaps bring live pigs representing the clinical science at the farm to the diagnostic lab as well so that a full workup can be completed on uh, live pigs, so to speak. And then really, you know, again, the communication with your um, diagnostician at your diagnostic lab is also very important when forming a diagnostic plan to get to the bottom of a situation like this. Well, that's all the time we have for today. 
Thanks for listening and special thanks to both Dr. Gauger and Dr. Petznik for their time and for sharing their insights and knowledge with us. Till next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Driven by Prevention podcast. Please subscribe for future episodes from Merck Animal Health and learn more about Merck Animal Health at drivenbyprevention.com.